0: All right, I want to welcome you to Grace Community Church this morning. We come now to the preaching of the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's pray together before we study this passage. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we come this morning in the name of Jesus, and we ask, Lord, for grace to help in time of need. Lord, we ask for mercy this morning from heaven. God, we pray to be taught by you today. God, we ask for a miracle, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds that our wrong thoughts about you would be banished And that you would impart to us truth and wisdom and a true knowledge of you this morning. God, we ask that you would lift up your own greatness and that you would show us your glory today. And that you would exalt the finished work of Jesus Christ. Make us trusters of him today. Make us lovers of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to ask us as a church, uh, we're going to stand this morning and read God's Word together. Our passage will be Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And so let's stand and let's read God's Word together this morning. This is the Word of God. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain. Out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness. And we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fires we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard your words. And when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all of my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. And you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess this is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning you may be seated Human beings often wonder what it would be like to meet God, to stand in the presence of God, to behold the face of God. In our day, there are books, not necessarily good books, titled 90 Minutes in Heaven, others titled 23 Minutes in Hell, both speculating what it would be like to get a glimpse of eternity, to be out of this world and into the next world. There are songs that we sing, old songs when we all get to heaven, new songs like I Can Only Imagine that ponder this question, what will it be like to stand before God? There are prayers that we pray. O God, come. God, draw near to us. Show us your glory. Now, it is good to ponder such things. It is good to ponder what it would be like to be before the Lord, to behold the face of God. It is good to sing such songs. It is good to pray such prayers. With two important qualifications. Number one, it is good to contemplate God with the, con- with the qualification that you are self-aware that your natural default factory setting from your great-granddaddy Adam, your natural default setting is to have thoughts about God that are far, far, far too small. It's true of every single one of us. Far too small and even puny. It's like gravity that pulls us down to the earth. Our flesh pulls our thoughts about God down into this natural world. Here's the way this works. You look around in creation... You see something you like and you think, man, God is like that. See something else you like and you're like, man, that that must be like God. But here's what the prophet Isaiah says. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to Him? Who's God like? We have to remember that God is in a category... That's absolutely distinct. Everything that we see is called creation, and that's one category. But God is not in that category. God is, in, God is the creator, and everything else is creation. We have to learn to distrust ourselves. We have to learn to distrust our natural impulses, Our natural inclinations of, well, I've always thought about God, fill in the blank. You have to learn to just scrap that sentence, full sail. And we have to learn to confess that by nature we are God-minimizers. We are God-belittlers. We are God-domesticators. We are those who try to pull down the Holy One and accommodate Him to His creation. Which leads us to qualification number two. When contemplating God, you must always use the Bible as your authoritative God. Always. Always. It was said here several weeks ago in one of the sermons that Greg preached. God is not who you think he is. God is who he says he is. God is who he reveals himself to be in God's word. And so the Bible is our God, our authoritative God. It's not just the starting place where we pick our devotional verse for the day and then make the rest up. Wholesale, the Bible reveals God to us. And we need that reminder, lest we be guilty of making a God in the image of man, completely reversing the created Order, And so, it's just simply true. You do not know who God is apart from the Bible. Now, in, Deuteron- in Deuteronomy 5, what Moses is doing is he has just repeated earlier in this chapter the Ten Commandments to the, to the second generation of Israelites. Right before they're going to enter into the Promised Land. And right after he finishes commandment number 10... He draws our attention back to Mount Sinai. Now, this is not the first time this has happened in the book of Deuteronomy. He draws the attention of Israel back to the moment where they met God. The moment where they encountered God, where the nation stood in the presence of God, where Israel met her God at the foot of the mountain. And I want you to notice just two broad features of this encounter before we study this passage together. Number one, notice that Israel's encounter with God was governed by God's speech. In other words, notice that this nation being brought into the presence of God, it was governed by God speaking to the nation, God's revelation of himself, God's word. In other words, don't have this idea in your mind that Israel found God. Israel had a treasure map, and they were wandering through the wilderness, and they got to Sinai, and they said, Eureka, we found him. That's not what happened. That's not whatever happens. Man can't find God. God reveals himself to man. God, God come, this, this happens like every other encounter in Scripture. God comes down, and God reveals himself to man, accommodates himself to man, and he does it by his speech, by his word. God reveals himself by his word. Second feature, I want you to notice that there is nothing casual about this encounter with God at the foot of Sinai. Nothing casual about it. I don't know about you, but from where I stand, we have way too much casual and God in the same sentence. Way too much of it. There's not an ounce of this here. Not one single Israelite in this passage is kicking back to have coffee with Yahweh. Nobody. Nobody's at ease and casual because me and God are just tight like that. Not an ounce of casual here. Instead, what we see at Sinai is a moment, listen, of tremendous awe. Tremendous reverence in the presence of God. Tremendous fear. Tremendous sincerity. This is even trauma in the presence of God. The whole nation is just becoming undone in the presence of God. Nothing casual about this encounter. And that's instructive to us of what it's like to be in God's holy presence. Let's lean in. And study this passage together this morning. Let's start with verse 22. Moses recounts what happened at Sinai when God spoke the ten words, the ten commandments to the nation. And one reminder we get in verse 22 is we get the reminder that the ten commandments were divine in origin. They they came from heaven. They came from God. The Ten Commandments are not Moses, the philosopher, you know, cranking out a book called The Greatest Hits of the Ancient Near East. You know, uh, let me see the the wisdom of Egypt, and I'll take the best of that and, and, and use a little of that. The Wisdom of Babylon, take a little bit of that, use a little bit of that. The Assyrians, the Phoenicians, and boom, the greatest hits. You know, Moses, the compiler, putting it all together. These words came from heaven. Verse 22. These words the Lord spoke. God spoke these words. They're not human suggestions, They're, they don't come from men. They came from God. They're divine standards. And that's a good reminder God's speech is always that way, right? God does not give us advice to, you know, be really good if you applied some of this to your life. God doesn't speak to us like a life coach of uh, giving life hacks. God's word comes with God's authority because it's his word. It comes with the authority of heaven. These are divine words from God. He also reminds us that this speech at Sinai was public. Verse 22, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain. I love thinking about this passage. I love it. It's an awesome scene. This is not a private meeting between God and Moses. That'll happen later in the book of Exodus. This is not a private meeting between Moses and a few notable leaders in Israel. That actually happens in Exodus 24, but not here. Not Exodus 20, not Deuteronomy 5, not here. We're not talking we're not even talking thousands. We're not talking hundreds. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of souls brought into God's holy presence, hearing God's word at the same time. Awesome scene. God's speech was public. Moses also reminds us that God's speech at Sinai was unique, verse 22. God spoke these words, and then Moses says, and he added no more. He added no more. The Ten Commandments are, uni- are unique uh, in this sense. They're, they're unique compared to all the other words in the Old Covenant. Only the ten were spoken directly by God to the nation. Only the ten were carved in stone tablets that, were, that was given to Moses as a witness of the covenant. Only the ten. Moses says, and he added no more. Finally, Moses reminds us that God's speech at Sinai was powerful. It's almost impossible to describe this moment and the awe and the power of this moment. I want you to think quickly in two categories what did the nation see, and then what did they hear? What did they see? And what did they hear? Moses reminds them that they saw fire. They saw a great fire. They saw a mountain on fire. They saw that mountain burning to the heart of heaven. They saw smoke and a cloud of darkness wrapped around that mountain. That's what they saw. I was thinking about, you know, there's nothing amazing in and of itself about fire, depending on what you're looking at. I was thinking about tiki torches. You know, those things we put on our patios to keep mosquitoes away. And somewhere, they don't work on our Mississippi tarantula mosquitoes, but they must keep some mosquitoes somewhere away. Tiki torches. We all know what that means. Nothing amazing about watching a tiki torch burn. But we're in a whole nother category when a whole mountain is burning like a tiki torch to the heart of heaven. And hundreds of thousands of souls are watching this moment while the mountain is wrapped in smoke and darkness. That's what they saw. It's an amazing thing. But what they heard is even more amazing. Moses reminds them, they heard the voice of God. They heard the voice of the Lord. And Moses says in verse 22, not only did they hear God speak, they heard God speak with a loud voice. They heard the loud voice of Yahweh. I was thinking about all the times in my life, in bad weather, that you hear those tornado sirens. Starts out in a distance really faint, and you're thinking, do I hear something right now? And that volume grows and grows and grows, and at full blast, it sounds like this Huge megaphone sitting in your living room just screaming, Danger, Danger, Danger. And you think, Man, that's loud. Until you hear that lightning crack right outside of your bedroom window, and the foundation of your house starts shaking, and the glass on the windows starts rattling. You're like, Whoa, I thought that was loud. This is a whole nother level of loud. That's God's voice. That's a a comparison to God's voice. God's mighty, majestic, powerful voice. They heard God speak like that at Sinai. And what they heard created a crisis. There was a national crisis that followed the speech of God. God's ten words that were given to the nation. And that crisis was created by the authority of the speaking God. I want to give you a few reminders about the voice of God. Because this is true all across this room. We have too small of thoughts of what happened at the foot of that mountain. We have two puny of thoughts of what they heard and the majesty that was revealed at the foot of that mountain. They heard the voice of God. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God made everything in the world. Everything that exists, God made it. But Genesis chapter 1 tells us how God made everything in the world. And he did it by merely speaking by merely speaking. Hebrews tells us by faith we understand that the universe was made by the word of God. God made the world by his word. And so as we read Genesis 1, one of the formulas that we see repeated over and over is this. And God said, and it was so. And God said, let there be. And it was so. And God said, let there be. And it was so. God made All things by speaking. How much power God's word has. How much authority God's word has. Psalm 29 is a meditation on the word of God. Psalm 29 reminds us that the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare. God speaks with authority. And so the same voice that spoke creation into existence also thundered from Sinai and addressed the whole nation. And what Moses reports next, as far as the response of the people, is typical in Scripture. In other words, what happens next doesn't surprise us as we read our Bibles, the whole thing. It's typical. What I mean is this, is that the Bible actually shows us that there is a pattern, happens often enough that you could call it a predictable pattern, of human behavior in the presence of God. Let's take just a moment to review some of these examples. What happens when... When, when God shows up, what happens when man is brought face to face with God? When God appeared to Adam after his sin, what did Adam do? Adam hid himself from the presence of God, covered his own nakedness in the presence of God. When God appeared later in the book of Genesis to Jacob at a place called Peniel, Jacob limps away from that encounter with God with his hip ripped out of joint, with the knowledge, I just wrestled with someone infinitely stronger than me. He was humbled in the presence of God. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses was overwhelmed with a sense of his own inadequacy. I can't, I'm not able, Lord. When God appeared to Joshua at Jericho, Joshua, the leader of Israel, fell on his face before one who announced himself as the captain of the army of the Lord. He met one mightier than he was, stronger than he was, more authoritative than he was, and he hid his face before the angel of Yahweh. When God appeared to Manoah, the father of Samson, he saw the angel of the Lord and he was convinced. He told his wife, We are about to die because we just saw God. When God appeared to Job, in the midst of Job's complaint, and God lays three chapters of questions to Job, calling him to account what does Job do? He puts his hand over his mouth and he says these words, I despise myself. When God appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, train of his robe, filled the temple in in the year that King Uzziah died. And what happened to Isaiah? That righteous prophet Probably the most clean lips in Israel. That's the man that speaks for Yahweh. That's the man that speaks the word of God. When he sees the Lord, Isaiah the prophet pronounces woe and doom upon himself. Woe is me, for I am undone. And the man with the cleanest lips in Israel says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The one whose job, the prophet of the Lord, to announce woe and doom upon unrepentant sinners, pronounces woe and doom upon himself in the presence of God. You notice in a theme yet? When Jesus appears to Peter at the Sea of Galilee, and He gives Peter the command to let down his nets into the Sea of Galilee after fishing all night, Peter lets down his nets at the command of Jesus, and Peter looks down into the waters that he's fished his whole life as a fisherman. Daddy was a fisher, always been a fisherman. And all of a sudden, he sees fish in the ocean obeying the voice of their master named Rabbi Jesus. And in that moment, Peter makes a beeline to buckle his knees before Jesus Christ. And what does he ask Jesus to do? He says, depart from me. And he confesses to be unclean and unworthy to be in the presence of of Jesus when Jesus appears to John the Apostle in the book of Revelation we're told that Jesus appears listen as one whose eyes are like a flame of fire that's awesome his voice is like the sound of many waters that's awesome A sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. That's awesome. Stars are in his right hand. That's awesome. And then it says his face is shining like the sun in full strength. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Human responses to The presence of God. So I want you to understand that what happens to Israel in this passage is typical of what happens to human beings in the presence of God. What you need to understand is that we are masters of self-deceit. We're good at it. We're really good at it. As long as our gaze is on ourself, as long as our gaze is downward, manward, earthbound, we flatter ourselves with thoughts of our own righteousness. We amuse ourselves with thoughts of our own goodness. You thought only children play pretend games. Adults do it all the time. We pretend that we are righteous. We pretend that we are good. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. We believe that modern creed, nobody nobody's perfect. Okay? We believe that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not perfect or anything, okay? In fact, that's one that's the one thing that almost everybody can agree to is nobody's perfect. The problem is nobody seems to be very bothered by the fact that nobody's perfect. In other words, we're all not perfect and nobody seems to care about it. Scripture shows us that it is in the presence of God that all that pretend is immediately exposed. The presence of God exposes us. It unmasks us. There's something exposing about being before the presence of the Holy One and we know it instinctively, we know it immediately, we know it by reflex, that when the holy appears, it immediately reveals everything in us that is not holy. You saw that in all of those examples. God shows up and our dirt shows up. God shows up and we see our weakness and our sins and our unfitness to be in His holy presence. This is why nothing makes sinners more uncomfortable than the presence of the one whom angels call holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so the pattern we see throughout the Bible is repeated again in Israel. Verse 25 tells us that this nation was afraid they were about to die. They were brought to the end in themselves they thought it was over for them and that was a well-founded fear it's not not like some you know uh hypochondriac that thinks everything's about to happen to them that's a this is a well-founded fear because god says this in exodus 33 verse 20 man shall not see me and live Something right in this impulse of Israel. There's something right here to discern. He's holy, I'm not, I don't belong here. Something's got to change. There's got to be a remedy here. Now the nation did not see God at Sinai, but the encounter was close enough to provoke the fear of death and cause them to dread any further encounter with God. And what I want you to notice in verse 27, all that context, that crisis, this crisis moment that was provoked by the word of God, is the occasion for Israel asking Moses to be their mediator. Let's read it again, verse 27. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, And speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear, and we will do it. And so Israel felt this tremendous need at Sinai for a go-between, for a mediator, for someone to stand between holy God and sinful nation. And they asked Moses to serve in this role. And just as an aside this morning, I wonder how many of you today in this room have recognized that you need the same thing. Have you recognized this about yourself? Friends, by nature, we do not belong in the presence. Of God we do not belong there God is holy and we are not holy and there's no exceptions you and God are not tight like that there is no special arrangement that God has with you you do not belong there do you see it do you know it about yourself I don't belong in his presence he's holy I'm not holy Somewhere along the way we pick up these bad ideas. I don't know everywhere that they come from, but we get these bad ideas that the God of the Bible gives us free passes for sin. It's like, "Okay. You know I know you've done your best. You know, I'll give you a free pass for sin." And I just challenge you with this, to find one place in the Bible where God says, "I'll give you one free sin." I'll give you one free pass where you can trample my authority. No consequences. You find that in the Bible. Friend, that doesn't exist. And let's just say it did, that the God of the Bible said one free sin. How long ago would you have used up your one free pass? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You have thousands of sins. You don't belong there. We are unholy. God is holy. Don't kid yourself this morning that you belong there. Angels who have never, ever, ever sinned hide their faces from the God of Israel. You see that in Isaiah 6. The seraphim had six wings, with two they flew, with two they covered their feet, with two they covered their face. And they're crying out in God's presence, He is holy. He is not like us. Angels are shielding themselves from God, and you think you belong there? Don't kid yourself. None of us belong in the presence of God by nature. And so in verse 28, you see that the Lord actually affirms that their request for a mediator is exactly right. Look at what he says in verse 28. They are right in all that they have spoken. I mean, one of the most amazing things in this passage is that Israel said something and God says, exactly right. I mean, you got it exactly right. That exchange that just happened, that impulse for a go-between, one to stand between God and the sinful nation, exactly right. They're right in all that they have spoken, God says. One of the wisest things that you will ever learn is that you need a mediator to represent you in the presence of God. You don't belong there, so you need someone to go there on your behalf and represent you. And God says, exactly right. Exactly right. And so it's here that Moses enters into this role as the mediator of the old covenant. You see this in verse 30 and 31. In verse 30, God dismisses Israel to their tents. He says, you go home. But in verse 31, God calls Moses near. Israel goes home. Moses draws near. To God, and then God reveals the whole commandment to Moses. All the word of God, all the statutes, all the rules, and then Moses' job is to take those words and deliver them to the people. He's the mediator, he's the go between, he's the representative. And so, what we have here in this passage is we see that Israel had a holy man in the presence of God on their behalf. And that was good, and that was gracious. And God was gracious to give them that gift of Moses as the mediator. But our passage also shows us that this arrangement was not enough. And you see this in verse 29. Look there with me. God signals in his speech That disobedience is coming. They're promising to obey. And God says this in verse 29. Oh, that they would fear me like this always. In other words, he sees their response in Israel. And he says, man, oh, that Israel was like this all the time. Sure, they will fear him at Sinai. With a fire theophany, cooking the mountain like a torch. Sure, they'll fear him when they hear the voice booming from heaven. But what about all the other times when there is no theophany? What about all the other times in Israel's life when there is no audible word from heaven? When all they have to go on is, it is written. What about then? What about when they can't see God? Will they fear me then? And God says... Oh, that they would fear me like this always, always. As the story unfolds, we see that Israel reveals itself as a disobedient nation. In fact, the same ones who asked Moses to be their mediator, in very short order, they reject his leadership. They grumble against his leadership. The very ones that asked for Moses to be the mediator were the wilderness generation that died as unbelievers in the wilderness under the judgment of God. In other words, their pledged obedience, when they say, Moses, you come back and tell us what we do and we'll do all of it, it was short-lived. Their pledged obedience was short-lived. And so what's happening in this passage is that God is showing us something true about this arrangement. There's something true here. Sinful man needs a mediator before a holy God. And we see that here. And yet, in this same passage, we also see that this arrangement in Moses' mediation does not secure Israel's obedience. It shows that the very same passage that shows us that we need a mediator shows us that we need something better than Moses. Something better than the Old Covenant. And friends, this is how biblical types work. Biblical typology. They're true pictures. They tell us true things. But they're not the ultimate form of what they point to. Paul calls these Two speeds, the shadow and the substance. You have the picture here, Moses' mediation, but you have it pointing beyond itself, pointing us forward. And so in our passage, the mediation of Moses points us forward as a type of the mediation of Jesus Christ. Moses has given us a gospel picture in this passage we need something like this but we need something better than this and even in the book of Deuteronomy Israel is instructed to look beyond Moses don't get stuck on Moses look beyond Moses listen to this passage in Deuteronomy 18 beginning in verse 15 this is God's promise to the nation. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. I want you to notice that Moses references this very same event, Sinai. This very same moment where Israel says, please be our mediator. And Moses puts his finger right there and says, you know what God did with me? There's another one coming like me. And God requires that you listen to him. God's going to put his word in that prophet's mouth and God will require you to Obey him. Friends, if there is nothing else that you have heard today, if there is nothing else that you have heard today, I want you to wake up and I want you to hear this. Jesus Christ is the mediator that Moses pointed us to, Jesus is that mediator. Jesus is that prophet like unto Moses that would arise from Israel, from among your brothers. Jesus is the one that God put his word in Jesus' mouth. And God requires that you listen to him. God requires that you obey him. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus came to do what Moses could not accomplish. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says it this way, There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Friends, if you feel that need, I don't belong in God's presence. I need someone to represent me in the presence of God. The Bible says you have one shot. You have one opportunity. You have one glorious mediator between God and man. You have to deal with the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and man. The only go-between. The only representative. The Bible says that Jesus is greater than Moses comes right out of Hebrews chapter 3. And it says it in this way, Jesus is greater than Moses in a similar way that the builder of the house is greater than the house. Jesus is greater than Moses. Let's think about some of the ways of how. Moses was a righteous man, a holy man, but he was relatively righteous. Relatively. When we compare him to other men, he was righteous. Even when we compare him to other saints, he was righteous. But he wasn't perfect. Friends, I'll remind you that the mediator of the old covenant didn't even enter the promised land. Moses sinned against God. God judged him for his sin. Moses wasn't without sin. He was a holy man, but he wasn't without sin. He was relatively righteous. Jesus was perfectly righteous righteous, not a blemish, not a blemish in the spotless record of Jesus Christ. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. There was no sin in Jesus Christ. He was perfectly righteous, spotlessly righteous. Hebrews goes on to tell us, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus was a son Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Beloved One. Moses faithfully spoke the Word of God, but the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the Word of God. No doubt, Moses enjoyed privileged access to the presence of God. You remember that, the, the part of the story where Moses goes in and his face is illumined. His face shines because he's... Beholding the glory of the Lord. And that's amazing. But Jesus lives in the presence of God. John chapter 1 says that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. And to see the face of Jesus Christ is not to see a reflection of the glory of God. To see the face of Jesus Christ is to behold the face of God Himself. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses gave us all the Old Testament pictures of atonement. Moses commanded that the blood of bulls and goats would be shed in God's temple as a sacrifice for sin. But this was a temporary arrangement that could never take away our sin. Jesus came to do what Moses could never do. Jesus gave his life as that spotless lamb, that perfect righteousness, qualified him to stand in God's presence on our behalf. And what did he do? He died as a sacrificial lamb. He poured out his blood to secure forgiveness of sins. He did what Moses could never do. He secured forgiveness for the people of God. Hebrews says it this way. He entered once for all into the holy places and by means of his own blood secured eternal redemption. Done. Done. Last but not least, Moses died. Moses died. Israel's mediator did not live forever. Forever doesn't even live into the next book of the Bible, Joshua. Not so with Jesus. (laughs) By means of his resurrection, he conquers death, he conquers the grave, and Jesus always lives. The grave is behind Jesus. He never faces it ever again. He ate it for breakfast. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? He's conquered death, and Hebrews tells us that his resurrection allows him to continue in his office of priest representative forever. Forever. We always and forever have a man representing us in the presence of God. His name is Jesus, the resurrected one. Hebrews tells us that he always lives to make intercession for the saints. Friends, I want you to see the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's glorious. He's been painting these pictures for thousands of years of what we need, giving us promises to draw our hope towards Christ, and then he does it, and he fulfills it in Jesus. And think about that this morning. How could the gospel of Jesus Christ be any better than what God has revealed? How could it be better It's glorious news. It's good news. The wisest thing that you could ever do is what Moses told you to do in Deuteronomy 18. It's the wisest thing you could ever do is you should listen to him. Think of how simple that is. There's a prophet coming like me. Listen to him. Listen to him. God will require that you listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And I want to give you a reminder, just one thing that Jesus said. Here's what he says. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so maybe this morning you got that reminder of all your thousands of sins that make you unfit for the presence of God. And you know that you don't belong there. Listen to Him. Jesus says, if you come to Him, you, though you don't belong in and of yourself, He will never cast you out of the holy presence of God. His blood covers all of our sins. In Christ, you have a promise that you will never be removed. And so let's thank God this morning for what God has done for us through our great mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making a way for us to draw near to you. God, you did it. Thank you that through the gospel we can come without fear. And it, it's, it's amazing to us, Lord, that you even tell us that we can come with boldness to the throne of grace, into the holy places. Such is the sufficiency of the work of our mediator. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for coming to do what Moses could not. Lord, we worship you as the one who never fails. You accomplished all of your work. Jesus, thank you for being our perfect representative before God and for doing everything that's necessary to bring us to glory. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us feel our need for Jesus Christ today. Convict us of our sins. Exalt the glory of the gospel in our souls. And God, turn us to Christ. Help us to rest forever in our great mediator. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.